second annual Zoom call. It was a very painful meeting. Uh, the members of the annual conference were called together for a Zoom call to have a vote. There are three of our brothers and sisters in the Fossil and the, and the uh, Castleford and the Eagle United Methodist Church who wants to leave the denomination because of the majority of the churches and their position on the LGBTQ plus position. Uh, I, it was a very painful vote for me. I, I've known many people in those three churches. I don't know if they're still part of the church or not, but we've been together in ministry for I don't know how many years. Uh, I voted yes to give them permission to leave because the property, you see, is owned by the annual conference. And so we gave them the property because they wanted to leave. And, and it's, it was painful to say yes as they left. Uh, but it's also struck me as interesting, too, because as the United Methodists, uh, we try to discern God's will, uh, God's desire, by what we call the quadrilateral, by looking at scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. And last Sunday, Pastor Joe gave a very powerful sermon, I think, on, on experience with that community of people. And, and I can identify with those experiences he shared. But the brothers and sisters in Christ in those three churches that are leaving, maybe they have different experiences. I don't know. But what strikes me as interesting is we are using the same Bible. We're looking at the same exact Bible verses. And, and we're coming out with different conclusions. That, that strikes me. But you look at church history. I mean, I mean, sometimes you can say the Bible has caused more conflict and more fights than any other book. Uh, there are people who killed each other because they have different interpretations of what the scripture says. I, I know one of the common ones that I have often heard when you start looking at the uh, gay issue is uh, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Uh, and it, here's what Leviticus says. I mean, it seems pretty clear cut, I think. <laughs> you must not have sexual intercourse with a man as you would with a woman. It is a detestable practice. That seems pretty clear. Uh, there's no gray area in there, or is there a little gray area? Uh, James Kaufman, who is a professor emeritus at the University of Virginia, uh, he, uh, he wrote a, a letter, a kind of a tongue-in-cheek letter to Laura Scheffler, who is an uh, Orthodox Jew, who says that this passage from Leviticus is just clear-cut. There's no F and bands, but it's God's law. You have to follow it. So in this letter, he, he wrote, uh, Laura, and here, let me read part of the letter. Dear Dr. Laura, thank you for doing so much to educate people regarding God's law. I've learned a great deal from your show and try to show that knowledge with as many people as I can. When someone tries to defend the homosexual lifestyle, for example, I simply remind them that Leviticus 18.22 clearly states it is an abomination. End of debate. I do need some advice from you, however, regarding some other elements of God's law and how to follow them. One question. First question is this. 
I would like to sell my daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. In this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price for her? That's what the Bible says. Any questions on that? I mean, the, the, the next question that he raised, too, I thought was interesting. I know that I'm allowed no contact with a woman while she is in her period of menstrual uncleanliness in Leviticus. The problem is, how do I tell? I have tried asking, but most women take offense. <laughs> well, it, that's in the Bible. That's what it says. Another question he raises, this is... Um, I have a neighbor who insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35, the second verse, clearly states he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or should I ask the police to do it for me? And then he goes on with a long list of other passages in the Bible that if you take it literally... How do you deal with those? Because people in, in those three churches, I'm sure, don't take these other passages except the Leviticus one on homosexuality, literally. So it's kind of picking and choosing a bit. And so I thought I would, part of my sermon, share of how I read Scripture and how Scripture speaks to me. I don't think it is the literal word of God, but it contains God's word. And God speaks to me through Scripture. And it, as of the four items of the quadrilateral, Scripture is the most important to me. I read it and study it every day. I continually learn and grow more as I write, read and study Scripture. Uh, it's very influential on my journey of faith. But also, as Peter Enns writes on the, in this note here, I thought it was very interesting how he points it. When we open the Bible and read it, we are eavesdropping on an ancient spiritual journey. That journey was recorded over a thousand year span of time by different writers with different personalities of different times, under different circumstances, and for different reasons. I mean, it's not just one person writing. I think God was part of the process of writing, but you have different cultures, different times, different understandings of the world, different understandings of human nature, and they're trying to write, understand, and describe the indescribable God that we worship. And I think for me, Jesus Christ is the clearest window through which I see and understand God. I only understand portions and fractions. I'm still always learning and growing because I think as a follower of Jesus Christ, you're always a student. There's always more to learn. There's always more to discover about this amazing God that we worship. But I think it was Richard, uh, Richard Rohr who had this comment about Jesus that goes like this. Jesus did not come to change the mind of God about humanity it did not need changing. Jesus came to change the mind of humanity about God. I mean, you think of the Sermon on the Mount. How often did Jesus say, you have heard it said, but I tell you. You have heard it said, but I tell you. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, you turn the other. You have heard it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy, and pray for those who harass you. You have heard it said, where did you hear that? 
it was in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament. He calls us to, to do some rethinking about the whole process. I mean, you think how often Jesus shattered some of the stereotypes of the day of eating with tax collectors, with sinners, touching lepers, touching a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, raising the dead. Jesus never punished anyone. He never gave anyone a disease. He healed, he restored. I mean, one of the great examples to me that I think is uh, in the Gospel of John, the eighth chapter. You have this passage of scripture uh, where they come and throw a woman caught in the very act of adultery. I mean, there's no question she was in adultery. Uh, You can't commit adultery by yourself. There's no question whether she did it or not. No, they caught her in the very act, and they only brought the woman. They didn't bring the man. And they threw him at Jesus' feet. And here's what scripture says about a woman or a man caught in adultery. Well, this is, I should have quoted this. This is a better quote first. Jesus, of all people, did not feel bound to follow strictly what the Bible said. Jesus was no rule book reader of the Bible. Jesus was bigger than the Bible. Jesus is not following the letter of the law. And in that woman caught in adultery, here's what Scripture says. If a man commits adultery with a married woman, committing adultery with a neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be executed. The Bible says it. No ambiguity there. But what does Jesus do with that literal quote from the Bible? He looks at the crowd, and you without sin throw the first stone. And beginning with the eldest, they turned and walked away. So Jesus is looking at this woman laying on the ground. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Mercy, grace, love. He doesn't take the letter of the law. He doesn't take the Bible as a rule book. He comes and changes our mind about what God is like. I mean, in one of my morning readings, recently I was reading, uh, rereading the book of Exodus, and I hit the, the uh, fourth chapter. And this is a story where Moses experiences the burning bush. And he hears the call to go down and set the people of Israel free who are in Egypt. And that's in the first part of the chapter. And then on the 24th verse of Exodus 4, it says, and then uh, God tried to kill Moses. Wait a minute. He's doing what God asks. Why would God try to kill him? But you see, that biblical writer, as he tells the story, everything happens because God wants it to happen. I mean, if you get a disease, it's because God gave you the disease. If you get get killed because God wanted you killed. But see, that's not the God as revealed through Jesus Christ. Jesus never gave a disease, never killed anybody. So when I read that story, first it kind of shocks me, and then I realized, I guess on the way to Egypt, 
Moses, what I would say, got seriously ill and almost died. But he recovered because his wife Zipporah gave him kind of some healings. So I see the healing is God as revealed through Jesus Christ, not trying to kill him. And so when I read scripture, I try to read it as I understand that God has revealed through Jesus Christ. And when it differs from the Old Testament, I will go with what Jesus revealed God to be like. Because if you look at what Jesus said, what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Richard Rohr, another one of my favorite writers, this is what he said. Christianity in its maturity is supremely love-centered, not information-centered. Christianity, excuse me, is love-centered, not information or knowledge-centered. The primacy of love allows our knowing to be much humbler and more patient and helps us to recognize that other traditions and other people have much to teach us, and there's also much we can share with them. So now I go back and I look at that passage from Leviticus, the 18th chapter, the 22nd verse. I can't just throw it out because I don't like it. I've got to wrestle with it. I've got to, I've got to try to understand it a bit. I try to understand why they're saying that. And then the first thing that came to me is my reason. I, I don't know about you, but I didn't choose to be heterosexual. When I was 11 or 12 or 13, I didn't wait. Should I go homosexual or should I go heterosexual? Well, I don't know which way. To, oh, I think I'll go this way. It wasn't a choice for me. And I assume it wasn't a choice for most of us. So it wasn't a choice. And then I look at the passage a little closer. It's interesting. It only condemns male homosexuality. It doesn't condemn female homosexuality. And it's not a generic man. You have to realize this is a legal document. I mean, if you look at verse 23, it condemns male and female bestiality. So it's only a condemnation of male homosexuality. So why would they be so against male homosexuality and not female homosexuality? You have to understand the culture of the time. Procreation, creating children, was such a primary importance to life. You had the high mortality rate of children, of youth, of adults, uh, to keep the lineage going. If you're a parent, your children are your social security. They're the ones who are going to take care of you, and you can't take care of yourself. The importance of having as many children as possible was a constant thing to, because of the death rate, because of the lifestyle. And see, in their understanding of procreation, the man's semen was the whole nine yards. Uh, the woman was kind of an incubator. Uh, and you just put it in there, and then that's it just incubated. But, but so it was life itself. And two men cannot produce children. What were gay women doing? I guess just fooling around. But that it wasn't worried. That's no problem there. Because, see, in the book of Genesis, it tells the story of Onan, who was supposed to impregnate his deceased brother's wife, and he spilled his seed on the ground, and that was cause for death because he wasted human life. And so two men 
having some kind of relationship of a homosexual style is wasting human life in their idea. Today, our understanding of procreation is different. It's just like the laws about selling your daughter for slaves. It's like you know, all those other legal laws. You look at it and you take it with the understanding of what we have today. So to me, as I look at tradition, well, it's a little hazy on that, but reason, experience, and scripture. If I see two people of the same sex in love or two people of the opposite sex in love, to me, it's a gift of God. It's a gift of God. That's how I understand it. The thought you need to struggle with, how do you see it? Let us pray. Good God.